0: One year ago, on the 12th of February, at 5 in the morning, a friend of mine was woken up by a prison guard and said, you're going home. He had just finished 287 days in prison, and he was being set free that day. He shared with me that as he walked near the prison gates into the free world, <clears throat> he said he kept waiting to find out whether it was really going to happen like whether it was really going to happen. And I asked him and so we talked a little bit and I asked him a lot of questions about I was about getting out of prison and that experience. And he was very kind to just entertain me <laughs> and deal with me. And I asked him finally I said what's the distinguishing factor what was the, the difference I guess between being free and being incarcerated. And he told me the freedom to make choices. And I said, really? So the difference between being in prison and being free was the freedom to make choices. And he said, yeah. He said it was the freedom to choose. And I said, well, tell me about that. He says, you don't have choices in prison. He said, in prison, you're told when you sleep. You're told when to eat. You're told when to exercise, you're told when to shower, you're told when to work. They tell you when to to do all that. He said, basically, in prison, they take responsibility for you. He said, when I walked out that gate, I took responsibility for myself. I had the freedom to make all those choices myself. I had the freedom to choose when I would sleep, where I'd sleep, and for how long I'd sleep. And this person does a lot of that. He said, I had the choice to eat, to drink, to exercise, to shower, to work, to play, all of that. I could do that myself. I could make those choices for myself. I now took responsibility for myself. Pretty interesting comments, aren't they? This person is one of us. This person is with us. He's part of our community. This week, posted a comment celebrating that freedom and thanking Crossing and Mother and Father for helping them. Freedom. I don't think that I fully understand what freedom is until I've had it taken away from me. But the Apostle Paul felt that freedom was being taken away from some people, those who had converted to Christianity. So he wrote a letter to help correct that situation. He addressed the topic of freedom, not as a physical level, being incarcerated in prison, but at a spiritual level in Galatians. And so in the book of Galatians, which we're about to start, he talked about freedom this way. In Galatians 5.1, he said, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Now, Most of us are thinking about freedom and slavery in the context of what we see, of like history, of like having shackles on you or being incarcerated and all. He's completely speaking in a spiritual tone, a spiritual realm. And so we're trying to figure out, when was I ever incarcerated spiritually? I didn't really feel that way, maybe. Maybe we didn't sense it and all. But he understood it. And Paul is trying to open this up for us to us to understand it. And this book, we're going to be learning about that this, for the next little bit. For us to understand Paul's vantage point and to grasp all that Paul is writing about in this letter, we need to take today and step back and look at it from way up high. We need to see the big picture, the context, the environment that the book was written in to some degree or another, and then get that macro view on it so that as he writes, we understand the micro topics that he's addressing and so here we are in Galatians. Let's first of all, just really quickly, let's, let me let you see this part here. Here in Galatians, there, this region up here is really called, technically, Galatia. You see it up there. But when the Romans came in and they made, they made political provinces, they named the entire region Galatia, and therefore that's why this book was written to the Galatians. You'll see this right here is the first missionary voyage of Paul, and you see he went right here, and he went out like this, and he went right into this area we're talking about. And he traveled like that, and he came back out. That was his first journey. You see, in his second journey, he did something very similar. He went up this way, he went back through that same region again here, way up here, came back down home. Then, the third trip he made, he started again in Antioch, and he went back into that same region. So he had traveled this region three different times, and in doing so three different times, he had relationships, he had churches he'd begun, he had disciples that were there, he had elders he'd put in place, all of this, the, he knew the people and the players here. So Paul had a relationship with these folks. Matter of fact, and later on, and I think it's chapter 4, I didn't highlight it, but of the passage, he even speaks to them, he says, my dear children, which is very much a John type of term. If you've ever read 1 John, um, John is talking about dear children a lot. You don't hear Paul talking about that a lot. But Paul did in this particular text. He does say, my children, chapter 4, verse 19. He says, my children. He speaks to them in a loving type of way. But that's not the whole tone of the message, as you probably well know. That's not the whole tone of the message. He's not like that the whole time. So, um, another thing I want to keep in mind. For some of us, we're newer to studying our Bibles. We're newer to what these books and these things are about. And so we want to remind ourselves that this, this Bible, the New Testament, these letters here, this stuff in the back here, they literally are letters. Back in the day when people put ink on paper or, or you know, parchment, you know, a long time ago, I know. You wouldn't remember that, I know. So, uh, and, and so he, we have a sense that if you look at it, he says, you know, he has a greeting to it. He has a closing to it. And that in between that, he's writing with purpose as correspondence was done. He had a goal in writing. Recently, I was going through a bunch of old stuff and I found letters to my Aunt Jewel. Everybody needs an Aunt Jewel. Some of y'all have one, I know. And um, they were going back to the early 1920s from an old boyfriend that she had before she'd married my uncle. And he was working far away from home and the content of the letters, they varied from trying to smooth out a disagreement they'd had and him explaining why he had said what he had said, to making plans and talking about what it'd be like when they were married. Each letter had a purpose that he had written it for. And so that is the same way that these letters are written Galatians, Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Thessalonians, uh, um, uh, uh, um, uh, Philippians. All of these were written with a purpose to people, they had a, a beginning a middle, an end. And in the middle, that's the meat. That's the stuff he's talking about. That's the message he wants to get across. That's the stuff he wants to draw your attention to as well as the original writers. Paul did not write these in such a way that he was thinking, someday they're going to collect all my letters and make a book about it and everyone's going to know me. He was writing a letter to people he knew, to friends, to people who he called dear children. So we quickly notice that this letter seems to have some heat in it. Open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, all right? This was the very first letter, they believe, that Paul had written. It was written probably in 48, 49 A.D. And this intro is a little shorter than some, but he comes out swinging in this letter. He starts out with four, five verses of courtesies, and in verse 6, he takes the first punch. I am amazed that you would quickly desert him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And he doesn't stop there. If you follow along, he does it again. And In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls them foolish In verse 2, he says, this is what I want to find out from you. He's interrogating them. He's like going, what were you thinking? Have you ever heard your parents say that? What were you thinking? That's what he says here. What were you thinking when you did this? In chapter 5, verse 12, he says, would, now this one right here, this one right here, let me, we're going to just go there. He says, would that those who are troubling you even mutilate themselves? Mutilate themselves? He's not talking about cutting up their faces. Mm Mm-mm. No. He's really saying right there but they would castrate themselves. He is not playing nicely here. The man is upset. So that's the context of this, of this book. And so we got to find out what was he so upset about? What was he hot about? There are some words and phrases in this letter that will help us understand that. One of them is law. You're going to read that verse in here, I think it's used 31 times. The word law is used in here 31 times. It's not talking about speed limits. It's talking about the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, the stuff that God gave Moses in the desert. Then on top of that, though, the Pharisees and everyone else added plethora of additional rules and regulations. And when he's talking about the law, he's talking about all of that. The law being all of those. He's, and in this book particularly, he speaks of keeping feasts, eating certain foods and not eating certain foods, and, and ritual washing, and, and the Ten Commandments, and circumcision, and breaking the Sabbath. Over 600 Old Testament Mosaic laws were there. And he's speaking to those when we read about law in here. All right, That's one definition we need to know about. Another one is legalism. Definitely a, a, a Bible term that the world has taken, and they've used it as well, but so that we're all on the same page. When we read this word legalism, what he's speaking about is this attempt to win God's favor by our own efforts of hugely dedication and obedience. Faithfully keeping the law would do this. That that was their idea. Faithfully keeping the law would do this. You're going to read throughout Paul's letters often where he's addressing this issue where eating certain foods had nothing to do with the diet. They felt like it made them... God's people. There, there is a, a bigger argument surrounding this book where it says that they were not trying to honor God, but they were also trying, they were God's chosen. They felt like as Jews, they were already God's chosen people. They didn't have to earn his favor. He had given that to them, and that was part of the problem. You Gentiles didn't deserve it. He gave it to us. And so in the context of trying to keep all these laws, all these laws were about trying to live out in obedience. All these laws in their mind were this is how we honor him. This is what this is what makes us good Jews. And so what happened in Galatia and these other places were there were people who had placed their faith in Christ and then people came alongside of them who said now then for you to be fully Christians you have to be full Jews also and Christians. And so you have to keep all of our laws as well as believe Christ died. And so that's the legalism of it. Doing things to win God's favor. Doing things to keep him pleased with us. Doing things to in some way or another having God be on our side. Throw his vote our way. So that's legalism. That's another term we need to know about. Um, The gospel. Now... Scott covered that, like, in an amazing, great, wonderful way last week. But you're going to notice in chapter 1, verse 6, that that Paul says this. I'm amazed that you were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. A different gospel. Well, here in this book, later on, like in in chapter 3, 8, Paul even spells out, he says, the gospel is this, that God would justify by faith. That is the gospel, that he justifies by faith. But what was being said to these people, these Christians in Galatians, was that it's not just faith, it's stuff you've got to do. And so he says that any gospel that is faith plus something is a false gospel. That's why the title that we put up here on our slides up here says this, it says that, the gospel plus nothing, that's all. That's everything. Faith plus nothing, that's that's it. And in this context, that's not what they were being taught. And that's what he's saying, that is a false gospel. He was saying that that gospel is one that is untrue. In this book, there are four mega themes that you need to be watching for. The, The theme of law. We touched on this group of Jewish teachers that insisted that non-Jewish believers must obey Jewish law and all these rules and that they believe a person was saved by following the law and by faith in Christ. And Paul opposed that, as we've been seeing. So that's one of the things we're going to see. Faith. Faith is used 23 times in this book. And it's the opposite of legalism. Faith is not about working. Faith is about believing And so here the theme of faith is that we are saved from God's judgment and penalty for sin by God's gracious gift to us. It's, It's what he's done to us. It's what he's given to us. And so this other theme is faith, used 23 times in the book. So becoming a Christian is in no way based on our initiative or what we do. It's all based on our faith and what God has done. And then this other theme is the one we brought up a few moments ago, speaking about my friend, freedom that they were free from having to perform. They were free from having to be a certain way. They were free from having to do certain things. This is called, this book has been called the Magna Carta of faith. It was Martin Luther's favorite book. He, he named it after his wife. <laughs> that was, that's pretty high on your list, isn't it? It was his favorite book because it just spoke of this theme of faith was so rich in it. And then finally, the Holy Spirit. We become Christians through the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and he brings new life even to our faith and to, and to believe as a gift from him. And you're going to see that come out, especially rich, when we get into chapter um, 4 and 5. And then also you're going to see it in chapter 2. It's going to be throughout the book. So those four themes we're going to see throughout the book over and over again. Now then, keep in mind, and this is, this is so important. This is really important. We get into trouble in reading these letters when we don't pay attention to who the letters were written to. You remember I said they were letters. They were written to a particular people for a particular purpose. And so often we get into trouble, we begin to read these letters and say, well, this is what this letter says about unbelievers. No, the letter was written to Christians. And this is what he had to say to Christians about these topics. And so in this particular letter, these are folks who have at one time or another believed that Christ died and it was the total payment for their sins and and realizing, realizing that they could do nothing themselves. In that regard, they had to rely on Christ for their salvation to fix their sin problem. It was written to Christians. And then others came into the midst and they began to teach them something different. They begin to teach them that to be fully saved, you had to be fully Jewish. So in other words, it was Christ's death plus all the laws. Circumcision, eat the right foods, observe the right holidays. In this book specifically. Now, to, to more fully understand why this is important, we believe there are three phases in our Christian life. There are three phases. I mean, just like seasons, so to speak, in our Christian life. Sanctification, I mean, justification, the first one. Justification is based on grace. Justification is a large word that just says that, that that my sin penalty, the justice that was owed, that was desired by God, that was owed God for my sins, was taken care of by Christ on the cross. That he took care of my sin, and God's justice was met in Christ's death. It's a one-time event. Only one. You don't have to do it more than one. You don't have to do it over and over again. If you've ever talked to God about it, and you meant what you said, then that's, that's one time is enough. It's a one-time event. That's justification. Many of us really get it, too, that, you know, that it is based on grace. It is not by, you know, that it's by grace you have been saved, not by works. We know that verse. It's by grace you've been saved. It's by God's unmerited favor upon you that you've been saved, not, because, not anything you've ever done. That's how you're saved. And so that one time event right there is justification. That's one thing. That's a season. It's this, this part of our Christian life. I've been justified. I've been made clean. No longer does God see my sin. He sees the blood of Christ instead. It's, it is as if I've never sinned. That's how rich this concept is. But then the next season is this one here in the middle, sanctification. And sanctification here is is everything that happens from the moment you trust Christ to the moment that God takes you out of this world. It is this process. It is this this time of becoming more Christ-like. It is becoming conformed to his image. It is growth. There are seasons of rapid growth, and there are seasons of slow, disappointing growth. But it is a time frame of becoming more like him. Now then, what the Galatians were taught, or being taught, that that's based on your works. And then this other other season here is glorification. That's basically that when this heart stops pumping, and I just crumple to the ground, that... I am with him. I'm taken into glory, and my body is fixed. And I'm trim and really handsome for the rest of eternity. Amen. That won't be true for all of you, though. (coughs) And so, that glorification, and that lasts for eternity. And then that there is also God's power that does that. But what Paul is saying in this letter here is is that... that's not true. What he's saying is that in this letter, it's that, talk to me here. Someone, what's wrong? What am I doing wrong here? There we go. Yeah, there we go. That it's not by works, but it is by God's grace. And so what does that mean then? By God's grace. That's what he says in the letter. He says, he says, you were saved by grace. Why is it that you stopped living by grace and now you're trying to live by works? Think it through. Do you live in this life now by grace or by works? Think about it. How would that work? What, did that, what would that look like? See, it gets muddy in between justification and glorification. How they came to Christ was by faith, by believing something. And then these legalists, these Judaizers, that sometimes your Bible might call them, they came in and said that God's power is not enough to keep you in this life. You've got to do some too. Now you think about this. If you're coming from a different church background, that's probably not a new message to you. That you need to do some things too. In some faith systems, that message is very profound. That message is very clear. You've got to do stuff for God to be okay with you and for you to earn his privilege, his preference, his liking you. It's what you do. And so therefore, there are many of us who go through this life feeling the burden like I've never done enough. I can never please God. And so therefore, that's why we're reading this letter. That's exactly what he's saying in this letter in chapter 1, verse 6. And, and, so, in chapter 1, verse 6, that's where we already read that. In chapter 220, he's saying, That's not true. In chapter 220, he's saying, That's not true at all. He says, Matter of fact, let me just tell you how it is. This is how it really is. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in this flesh, I live by works. Can I, see a, can I see an amen in that? No. No. He says, I live this life by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The life that I'm living right now, it's not a life of works. It's not what I'm doing. It's not what I don't do. It's faith. That's what he says in 2.20. In 3.2, he goes on further. He says it again. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works or by the law or by hearing of faith? Which was it? How did you get here? Because how you get here is how you stay. So it's kind of like, you know, if you've ever heard it, you know, you dance with the one that brung you. Right? That means, never mind, I'll explain it later. Um, In other words, like if you got here by faith, you stay here by faith. Chapter 5, verse 4. You have been severed from Christ if you are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. And so here he's saying, he's saying like, if you're trying to add anything to this, that's not it. It doesn't work. If you're trying to add anything to this, you're not getting it done. If you think by keeping the law, if you think by being circumcised, if you think by eating certain foods or not eating certain foods, or observing fasts, or keeping the Sabbath, if you think all of that is... Adding that to your life is making God happy with you? It's not. It's not working at all. The truth of the matter is, is that you don't have to do any of that. He's already thrilled with you. That's the truth of the matter. And so... What you have here is this thing here where people have gotten stuck in the middle of believing that it's things we do that make us worthy, that, make it, that qualify us. It's that middle part that's so muddy and difficult that has become a problem for us. Now, let me give you an example because a lot of us are thinking like, well, I don't keep feasts. I eat most everything that comes across my path. I mean, I do. And uh, so, like, I don't really relate to this message very much. Well, let me just give you an example. Jerry Bridges shared in his book this. He was about to speak at a church one Sunday. He had been brought in to speak about discipleship, which is his gig. And he arrived at the church only to learn that a leading member had died unexpectedly and tragically just the day before. And so the church was in an emotional turmoil. And so he realized to step into this church, into these people, and to speak about discipleship would be a square peg in a round hole. It just was not the right thing. He knew he needed to speak comfort to these people. And so he said, I pulled aside and I began to pray, God, give me the words you like for me to say. And he said, as I prayed, I began to think, now then, I really need you to come through here, God. Did I have my quiet time today? Did, have I said anything I shouldn't have said? Did I lust? Have I lied? You see where he's at? Have you been there before? When he needed God to show up, he went through a checklist and said, am I qualified for him to show up in my life? Is he happy with me? Are we okay with each other? He goes on, he said, I realized what I was doing and I confessed it. and I just said, God, I believe by faith that I don't have to please you. And I believe that nothing I've done today and nothing I haven't done today would affect your ability to step into my life and to live large in this moment. That's my words, not Jerry's. To step in here and have your purpose and plan for these people. You been there? You done that? I have. I've had times where I thought, you know, you show up with a teachable moment with somebody, with your kid maybe, and you think about yelling at the wife or the kid a few hours earlier, and like I'm disqualified. He can't use me. I'm, he's not happy with me. I would be unusable. I'm a bad tool. I'm a bad person. See, grace says this. He loves us regardless. He loves us regardless of what we say or do. There is no sin at all that you could ever, 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 ever commit that he would not forgive you for. The death of Christ is bigger than any sin you could commit. And the forgiveness of God is bigger than any amount of sins you could ever commit. And so his favor upon us is not something we have to earn. His favor upon us is not having our quiet times five days a week, you know, five times a day or seven times a week, whatever the case may be. He's already thrilled with us. The quiet time is about me knowing him not earning his favor. Now, does that mean, and and Paul addresses this here too, does that mean that we're free to sin? See, this is the thing about Christ and the Gospels. Yes, it does. I really said that. Yes, it does mean we're free to sin. When I spoke to my friend, One of the things he said about getting out of jail One of the things he said about getting out of jail was he said, now that I'm out of jail I can do what I want. I can go over 55 miles an hour if I want to. He said, but I know that with my choice comes consequences. With my choice comes consequences. Are we free to sin? Yes, absolutely. But Paul addresses it in Romans, and he addresses it in this book, and he says, but that's not what we want. And if we do, it has consequences. You see, now that's, that's the problem with that. The thing that I really, really don't like about that, the thing that I, I just wish was different is that I, I, I like things in some semblance of organization. Now, you wouldn't believe that by looking at certain parts of my life. But it's true. I want things to be in a way that I understand them. And the problem with God's grace is that it's just not that way. It's incredibly messy. It's his system. And the the thing about that is that his system is not that God's grace fits inside of a box and we unpack it and we look at it and we say, I understand it now. It doesn't fit inside of a systematic theology book. God's grace is bigger than all that. It is infinite the way he is. And in my finite mind, I'm not going to wrap my head around that. And so as I've been studying this, I've made the decision that I will err on being generous with grace as opposed to being cautious with it. I will err with giving out to someone that I'm not sure really deserves it because I didn't deserve it to begin with either. Now, immediately people are saying, well, what about accountability? I don't know about accountability. I'm figuring that out too but I won't err because of accountability. I will err out of generosity. How about you? How about you? I wish that we could say that in our finite mind we could understand grace, that we knew who to give it to, that we knew how to give it, that it would always be done right. I don't. But I don't want to withhold it because of my ignorance. I'd rather be too generous because you know what? There's always more to give out. And if I come before the Lord someday and he wants to spank me for being too generous with God's grace, I'd rather it be that than being too cautious and stingy with it. How about you? But the thing is, though, is it's hard to give away something that we don't realize we've ever been given ourselves. Coming to grips with it. The reason why I'm so sloppy in giving it out is because I'm so sloppy with receiving it because I'm still trying to figure out if I'm really qualified before God. In my own mind, in my own heart, I've had legalizers. I've had Judaizers in my own vein that have snuck in and said, you're not good enough. You need to do this. You need to do that. You didn't do this. And God's not happy. You better go to 1 John, baby, and confess because he'll forgive you. It's true. That's true. It is true. It's absolutely true. But that constant assessment... Of me trying to be qualified before God, is not God's voice. It's legalist voice. It's Satan's voice. W.E.B. Du Bois, the sociologist and civil rights activist, speaking about the slaves after they'd come out of slavery, he said, "Slaves and journalists took a brief moment in the sun, and then they moved back again towards slavery." How much does that apply to us? He said that so often they were aware of the formal change in their status, but they had little understanding, and therefore it changed very little in their day to day lives. Are you bound? Are you living as a free man or woman? Do you realize how often you assess yourself for your worthiness before God by what you do or don't do? Well, I'm just beginning to. I hope that we learn that together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the richness and the depth of it. And in my small mind, I just barely scratched the surface. I pray that we as a community together would learn to scratch it deeply, that we together would learn what it means to live in grace and to give grace and to be generous with grace. And, that, and understanding how much grace we've received, it, won't give us the, it gives us the freedom to sin, but it will not give us the compulsion to. Because when we truly understand the grace that we received, our hearts are moved towards you, not towards sin. Teach us, Lord, and may we follow. Thank you for your unmerited favor, and thank you in this moment, every single one of us in this room has your great love and compassion bestowed upon us. Regardless of where we've done, regardless of what we've done, or where we've been today, you love us. And it's in